Let us come before God in prayer. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I read this past week uh, on an online post that if we include scientific words, there are over one million words in the English language. Of all those words, the average person knows about 20,000, apparently, uses roughly 2,000 different words a week, and speaks about 16,000 words a day, on average. Although you'd expect probably that number for a minister on a Sunday goes up. The book of Proverbs reminds us that the, power, the tongue has the power of life and death. So our words matter. Not so much the number of words we speak, but the kind of words and the purpose for them. Fourteen years into married life, I can well affirm this because I am still very much learning to speak in life-giving ways. One year into ministry here in Brighton, Brighton's, having spoken more words than in any other year of my life, and I am aware that my words may have touched on both sides of this proverb. So we can lightly resonate with the writing of James today because we know his assessment in verse 2 to be true. We all say wrong things. Because after all, who amongst us is perfect? Who lives a perfect life? None of us. No one. So if we stumble in our deeds, then we sure stumble in our words. We all say wrong things. And for this reason, what James is about to tell us, detail for us, is relevant for us all, even though he begins with teachers. Anybody want my job now? For we teachers must be especially careful, because the weight and quantity of our words has an effect and is great. In verses 3 to 5, James is seeking to help us grasp that our tongue is powerful by giving three pictures. First, the, the bit in the horse's mouth, which can turn such a powerful animal. Secondly, the, the lowly rudder, which can pilot and steer the most mighty of ships, even amidst powerful winds like we've experienced last night. Thirdly, the small spark, which sets the greatest of forests aflame, laying low even the most powerful of trees. Across all three pictures, James highlights the disproportionate power of the tongue. As a result, the tongue can boast. He writes in verse 5, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Boasting here is not in a negative sense, it's in a neutral sense, that the tongue does have considerable influence. Now, in our digital age, it's worth bearing in mind that if James was writing today, I think he'd probably include all forms of communication, whether electronic or written, because we utilize these things to say things. So let's keep in mind every social media post, every electronic message, every note we might send one another, for they are all powerful means of communication, powerful means of speaking. It's just that in James's day, the average person could only utilize the spoken word. And so with a focus on the tongue, 
James wants to help us see the destructive power of our words. In verses 6 to 8, he says that the tongue is a fire, that it corrupts the whole body, can set the course of one's life on fire, and has at its disposal deadly poison. Again, that, that echoes that earlier proverb, does it not? That proverb that speaks of life and of death. God's Word is full of examples where the tongue leads to death. We could list a few here. Gossip and slander, flattery, bragging, breaking confidence, complaining, lying, crude humor or language, deceit, cursing, and bitterness. So many ways, and with our powerful words, so many ways that lead to death. Because none of us is perfect. None of us, as James says in verse 8, not one of us can tame the tongue. It's a runaway fire. It's a viper waiting to strike with its poison. But not only does it affect others' lives, it affects our lives. The words we use can have a powerful impact upon the course of our own lives, upon the actions we then choose to take following our words. That rash word, that flippant comment which led to that argument which then shaped the months and years to follow. Truly the tongue, truly our ability to communicate has power. And too often that power itches wounds and scars. It itches unhealthy patterns of thought or behavior into our lives and into the lives of others. I've spoken at the Guild about how my call into ministry came about, and it took me about 30 minutes, so you're getting the condensed version. Uh, I came upon me at the age of 20. At that time, into youth work, I had been studying chemical engineering at Harriet Watt, and the call came, and I left that studying after two years, and went to study youth work, and then if we fast forward six years, by that point, I'm then working as a youth pastor in a church in Edinburgh. And things seemed to be going well, though there were the usual challenges. And one morning I'm called in to meet with my line manager and I find out that my contract is not going to be renewed at the end of the year. There's something like seven, eight months left. And I'm being encouraged in that meeting, um, I'm, or seeking to be, I'm being freed up to explore our broader call rather than singularly to young people. It's meant to be a supportive meeting and a supportive process afterwards, but because of the time, because of the circumstances that were also going on in my life, those words at that time led me to have a touch of depression, and I avoided youth ministry after that job for three years. I just couldn't get near it because it was too painful. Words have power. And they can set the course of our lives and the lives of others. For our words, our tongues have the power of life and death. I think we all know this to be true. I think we can all resonate with what James writes. So I want to talk about two responses to this issue. The first response is, how should we use our tongues? Yes, it can lead to death. 
but it also has the potential to be life-giving. So how can we lean into that way? How, what wisdom might God give us so that we and others might know life through our words? We've seen in James in previous weeks that he has some wisdom to pass on. Wisdom that is quite easy to gloss over, actually. He said earlier, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We know this sentiment. We've probably heard it many times. At present, I I'm, have the privilege of working uh, through some pre-marriage material with two couples who are being married later this year by myself. And what's striking so far in the material is that it really does try to put this into practice from the first session because it seeks to give tools to the couple so that they can slow down their responding, whether it be with anger, whether it be with defensiveness, so that their response does not lead to rash words nor block effective listening, listening that is full and deep. But it's easy to gloss over this verse, maybe because we hear, hear it so often. It's easier to gloss over James's encouragement here to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become hungry. Yet, if we put them into practice, it would be life-giving. I said at the start of this message that it's one year, just over one year since I came here at Brighton's. In fact, it's one year into full-time ministry as a minister at all. That means I've got a lot to learn. That means I'm going to make mistakes. And it likely means that I will communicate things from up here, which in principle I will stand by because I don't say anything that I don't believe, but which I also don't communicate clearly enough or in the best way. And for that, I apologize. And I appreciate, I value that you have been slow to speak and slow to react especially if you feel a degree of loss as things have changed in the past year. I hope you'll continue to be like that and not jump to conclusions about what my motives might be or what was he trying to say or what was he trying not to say. And so if those kind of questions or feelings come up, if you feel them just now, can I add an encouragement to come talk to me? If you're struggling, come talk to me. I'm not looking for you to lambast me. I don't want to be pinned against the wall, please. But come and say, Scott, can we grab five minutes or an hour? And just come and ask your question. I wonder. Rather than going, why did you do that? I wonder why. Or I wonder what you meant by that. Or I wonder, I wonder. It just changes the tone of the conversation. And I promise to be quick to listen and slow to speak. I've already had a number of such conversations with folks already, so likely what you bring will, will not surprise me, will not scare me, and I am willing to listen. So please do, and I believe the conversations I've already had have been beneficial both ways. But whether we feel that way or not, let's heed this piece of wisdom that our words might be life-giving. 
We could also turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and see what Paul has to share there on the issue. For he says, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. It's a passage chock full of wisdom, is it not? We could spend hours on it. But in summary, to speak truth is life-giving. To be careful of anger is life-giving. To only speak what is wholesome, which builds others up, which meets their needs. As such, there should be no talk which is bitter or disparaging, but only that which is kind and compassionate, with a readiness to forgive, because, as James reminded us, none of us is perfect. We all stumble in many ways. I suspect we've heard this kind of thing again many times, and the church has apparently been teaching it for 2,000 years, and yet it's still causing people to respond negatively to the church. For example... 19th century Swiss philosopher, poet, and critic, and I'll get his name wrong, Henry Amiel, you can correct me later if you want, he said, in order to see Christianity, one must forget almost all the Christians. I mean, come on. How, how sad. How sad. And likely all because of the power of the tongue, which can cause such harm rather than foster life. Because what if we took the words of, of the Scriptures seriously? Might we see in our day a community which, where faith is vibrant and true, where, where there is an act of love for neighbor, where all experience the kingdom of God in our midst, such that the skeptics and the critics are encouraged to, to wonder afresh about Jesus. To wonder that his claim in John 10, that he came to give life, and life in all its fullness, is true. Our words have the power of life or death. So will we heed the wisdom of God that we might be a community who is life-giving in our words? But here's the rub. Here's the rub. Even with such wisdom, we cannot be that community in our own strength. And this is the second response we need to explore. Jesus said, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The tongue has the power of life and death. And the extent to which we foster life or make way for death depends on our hearts. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The heart in this verse is the real you, the, the core of who you are, your nature, your identity. James has said something quite similar actually in the passage. He said of the tongue that it is a world of evil set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil. Is that true? kind of jars, don't you think, with 21st century belief? Is it true? 
Well, we've already seen just above there in the words of Jesus that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If there are some evil words, at least then there is some evil in the heart. The internal world of our soul, of our heart, will flow into our words. So I think James is one for one so far. What about this idea that the tongue is set on fire by hell? Earlier I quoted from John chapter 10, where Jesus said that he came to give life in all its fullness, but earlier in that same verse, Jesus also said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's speaking about the powers of hell. And we might say that any deed, any word, which leans away from life, may in fact be partnering with the dominion of darkness. Paul, in the same passage we looked at earlier, said, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. According to Paul, it's possible as Christians in our anger to give space, to allow influence for the enemy to wreak havoc upon the church like a fire. So yes, I think the tongue can be set on fire by hell. And indeed, uh, to call it a restless evil, as James did as well, ties in with that. Because the, the idea of restlessness is that it's ready to break out, it's ready to cause harm. Yeah, Alex, I'll get you afterwards, okay? And restlessness is a characteristic of the demonic, whereas peace is characteristic of God and His good kingdom. And it's under the, such influence that the tongue can be led into duplicity, as James outlined in these final verses today, of praising God, yet cursing the one made in God's image, thus maligning the God, the Creator Himself. As James says, this should not be. We are meant to be like a fresh spring, life-giving, and by our fruit we will be known. So how are you known? Are you known by your bitter words? Are you known by your unloving words, or your harsh words, or your angry words, or your defamatory words? What words are you known by? Because the words you're known by reveal the heart that you've got. What's your heart? What are your words revealing? Because the heart is the real you, is the real me. It's the core of who we are. And so if we want our power-laden words to speak life rather than death, then the heart cannot be in league with evil hell and the flesh because that just leads to death. We need a different ruler, not ourselves, not the enemy. We need Jesus, King Jesus. Because when Jesus comes into our lives, when He becomes our Lord and Savior, then the heart changes. It begins a journey of change. It begins, though, with you becoming a new creation. As Paul said to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 
It was such an understanding that led Paul to say to the Ephesians in that very same passage we looked at, I stripped out these words earlier, but in the same passage he said, we are all members of one body. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Forgive each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. When we become that new creation through Jesus, when we realize that we are members of His body, when we realize that God lives in us, and so we don't want to grieve Him, when that becomes a priority, when we realize that God so loves us that it took Him to the cross, well, then we truly are a new creation. We have a new identity, and it begins a process of change, changing our heart, and so changing our life. I've told you before of how spoiled, selfish little brat that I was at the age of 19, and I'm not perfect. I've given my reasons and examples before. I am not perfect, but I am not the same person I was when I was 19. And it's all down to Jesus. I'm not trying to be nicer. I'm not trying to be more loving. Have you tried changing your heart? I personally count that as one of the most impossible things to do in life. We need help. We need a help from outside of ourselves, and that help has changed my heart. Friends, our words have the power of life and death, and, and if we want to be a community who is life-giving in our words, if we want to be life-giving, whether in our marriages, our homes, our friendships, if we want to be life-giving in our places of work or leisure, then it begins with the heart. But as I say, you can't change your heart. You need Jesus. And the good news, the really good news, is that He's ready. He's ready to step into your life. If you'll but call on him and let him rule your heart. He said a, a long time in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And you know what? 2,000 years ago he fulfilled that. On the day of Pentecost he sent his spirit upon the church and he brought in the Holy Spirit to this end time, these final days, so that we would be the residence of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit would reside in us, changing us, making us new creations, growing in us the likeness of Jesus. Friends, if we want our words to be life-giving rather than fostering death, then it's time to humble ourselves. It's time to call upon the Lord. And it's time, as we call upon the Lord, it's time to ask Him to fill us with His Spirit, because in, again, that same letter we've referred to a number of times, Paul encourages the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. And the idea behind that phrase is that you have to keep experiencing the filling of the Spirit so that in time every part of your life is permeated and controlled by the Spirit. This is not a once-for-all experience of which the early chapters of the book of Acts make quite clear, for example. And this is speaking about the same group of people in Acts 2. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
A little later on, another time, same group of people, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. The implication of Paul's words in Ephesians is that Christians are to keep their lives open to the repeated filling by the Holy Spirit. And here in Acts, we see that this filling of the Spirit leads to speech that is holy. So how do we do this? Well, it's just simple prayer. We don't have to make it overly complex. We simply pray that ancient prayer the church has been praying for centuries, come Holy Spirit. And then we wait upon Him. And we might sense something, we might sense nothing, but as we pray in faith, as the church has done since Pentecost, then we just leave the rest to God. Friends, if we want to be a community of life-giving words, then we must let Jesus change our hearts. And He does that by His Spirit, filling us afresh day by day as we pray, come, Holy Spirit, come. You know me by now, or at least you should be getting to know me by now, that I always want to give you an opportunity to respond, to take some action. And we could just sit, and you can just sit uh, and pray uh, after this. But I felt a nudge on Thursday night as I prepared this. I felt it was right to introduce this morning what we've introduced in the evening services. In the evening services, we have an opportunity for people to be prayed with directly. Uh, and I'm usually in a corner somewhere, and people can come up and be prayed with. Just a very short, simple prayer. Uh, and a number of people have been taking that up. I've held back on a Sunday morning. I kind of feel like this is the time, the message that says we should offer this today. I'm not going to be doing it every week, but it just feels like today, just to sit might just not be enough for some. It might be enough for you. But it's for some, they need to come out and to be prayed with this morning. And I hope that we will be each other's best champions and cheerleaders and say, okay, that kind of freaks me out and it makes me feel a bit weird, but maybe they need that. And I'm going to champion that for them and I'm going to make space for them and they can receive prayer because that's what they need. That's what they want. And great that Scott's offering that. Can we be those kind of people? Can we be that kind of community? I hope we can, because I'm going to offer it. And so we're going to, I've asked the band if they will repeat, as the deer uh, pants for the water, verses 1 and 3, Neil, 1 and 3. And we'll stand to, to sing, and then we'll lead straight into Oh for a Thousand Tongues, and Jill will play that on the organ. And if you would like prayer around anything to do with words, but if you might be the most exuberant person for Jesus. You may be like, I love Jesus, and He's amazing. Then come forward for prayer, because you can't do this life, this faith thing, on your own. And if you're willing to humble yourself and step forward, I think God will meet with you. The testimony of millions of Christians now is that praying with someone and having someone pray with you is so powerful. 
So if you feel something's resonated, if you feel that you want to ask God to come alongside you and for someone to pray, come Holy Spirit, I'll be down on the front row. And I've asked a couple of people from the Alpha team uh, to be available as well, just in faith that maybe there's more than one person. Uh, and they'll have a purple lanyard on. So if they've got a purple lanyard, they're there to pray with you. And you can choose them, you can choose me, whatever you fancy. But we'll be there at the front as we stand to sing these final two hymns, one after the other. And please do feel free to, to remain sitting if you would prefer to do that um, as we sing.